you know, things in the world of business move pretty fast. And it's with that in mind that this week on the Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg, we're going to talk about corporate governance. Ren, I know from our conversations together before that Agile and the Scaled Agile framework are tied very closely to corporate governance, but we've got a good number of new listeners. And for those folks who may just now be finding you, can you give us a a review about the relationship between Agile and Scaled Agile and corporate governance? Sure. So when we think of governance, um, it is the um, values, processes, and practices that an organization uses to protect uh, stakeholder value Mm -hmm. and stakeholder assets. Um, Very similarly, Agile is the values, uh, practices, and processes that we use to maximize product value. Mm -hmm. So you can see right there, there's already um, intrinsically some overlap. Um, But with Agile, it's a very different form of governance than what we're accustomed to in a traditional product management or IT methodology world, Mm -hmm. where it's all about schedules and, um, you know, milestones and things like that. Agile governance is really tied to business value, but also deliverable product. So one of the lowest levels of governance that we have in Agile is automated testing. Mm-hmm. Sounds very simple, right? But a lot of organizations really struggle with automating their tests. But what automated testing does is you know, and a lot of organizations focus on it in terms of it saves you money because manual testing takes longer. It's very labor-intensive. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. But from a governance standpoint, what automated testing gives you is reduced risk risk and increased predictability. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of governance that every organization is looking for. Mm -hmm. So... There's kind of a, a pressure or a push-pull um, around governance and values and profitability. Mm-hmm. Am I hearing right that uh, working within the Agile framework that it helps you to resolve that better? Um, at, a, at the lowest level, which is the easiest level to manage, um, and also in the shortest time period. Okay. So, yes. So, it, um, when we reduce risk to its smallest component, it's easier to manage mm-hmm. and to avoid or mitigate. Um, and when we use our building blocks at the lowest level, we actually create the greatest amount of predict- predictability. Okay. Well, you know, um, it's kind of at that lowest level that is the one I can understand. So, um, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. So, good. Um, and moving on, you know, there's some specific issues or things in this whole space that we haven't addressed directly. So I thought we could explore them. And at the top of the list is gender diversity or maybe 
a better way of saying it is the lack of gender diversity on corporate boards of directors. That seems to be getting a lot of media attention lately. What are some ways to see more women moved on to the boards of publicly traded companies? Would it be term limits or age limits or add more seats? What do you think? Um, yes to all of those. Plus, I'll, I'll add a couple more. Um, and that is to go outside the existing board membership to look for new board members. Mm-hmm. The primary reason, according to some national and international studies of corporate boards, that there are so there is so little diversity on boards is because people um, recruit with from within, if mm-hmm. you will. Boards tend to recruit friends. Right. And as a result, they get a lot of people who look exactly like them on the board. Yep. Um, Where they find organizations that use recruiters, that use services that look outside of their friends and family, Mm -hmm. um, those boards almost always have greater diversity. And when we talk about diversity in boards or in an organizational setting, it's not just um, you know the the ones we usually think of um, politically, you know. So um, you know, sex, gender, religion, um, ethnicity, et cetera, but also in organizational context, we have to think about diversity in perspective and experience. Right. Um, oftentimes boards recruit, there's one that I'm working with right now. Um, it's kind of, uh, entertaining because it's an energy firm Mm -hmm. and 60% of the board members are lawyers. Oh, wow. That's a bunch. Lawyers know a lot of lawyers. And so they just, over the last 20 years, keep recruiting the people that they know. Yeah. When you said friends, I mean, I thought immediately, well, you know, my friends are all people who look like me and they're mostly, you know, 90% of them are are other men. So that makes a lot of sense. So having, Mm -hmm. you know, an outside agent come in and uh, help do that work would sort of cure the, or at least help cure the whole friend issue. Right. And the other thing that it helps to do is um, all the reputable recruiters will work with a board and help Um, do an analysis and sort of diagnose the board need. Mm -hmm. And this is where we see why diverse boards outperform um, more homogenous boards because they are being very strategic in their board membership and making sure that they're balancing the personalities. Mm -hmm. Boards tend to, if they are lacking diversity, tend to become very monolithic in their approach. Uh-huh. So they fall very heavy to one side or another of the risk-reward um, equation. So they either become completely risk-averse, and so they miss opportunities. Right. Um, they lose the ability to be competitive, which we've all seen. Right. Right. We all we any of us, you know, listening to this right now can name a company who is a lagger Mm -hmm. in their industry because they've become so risk averse. 
Um, and then on the other side, we have um, an overpopulation of people who are really going after that brass ring at every single opportunity. And we've seen those companies too. Mm-hmm. And they almost always go down in flames. <laughs> and we can all name them. Right. Right. Enron is usually the first one that people come up with. And Enron is a really great example of what happens when your board becomes too homogenous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that is probably the uh, example of um, of how to not do governance that that comes up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But. Either one, right? Because there have been really successful companies that were incredibly successful that became too risk averse and they became dinosaurs in their industry and just yeah. withered away. Yeah, that's also so. Any kind of extreme in that in that space is uh, to be healthy. avoided. Yeah. Well, let's talk about other other types of diversity in addition to to gender. Should, in your opinion, do you think a board's members or membership should reflect the customer base or should it be more of a reflection of of the general population and along kind of along those same lines is there more to diversity than than what i just said is there more to it than just gender and ethnicity right and you know and i mentioned you know a couple other examples right earlier in some nationality, but also um, your your specialty, mm-hmm. you know, an accountant is going to look at a problem, how to solve a problem, um, very different than an operations person. Right. Very different than an IT person, very different than a product manager or a salesperson or a doctor. They're all going to look at these things a little differently. And in organizations, and specifically boards, because boards tend to be fairly small, populations. I mm-hmm. think the largest corporate board I've worked with is 24 members. Mm-hmm. Um, that becomes very real diversity within such a small community. Mm-hmm. Um, is to reflection of the customer or their, say, shareholder base. Um, there's been a lot of arguments for it, but not really solid science. Um, there are organizations that, global organizations that tend to recruit um, board members from the populations that they serve, and what they found is that it's helped them actually expand globally better. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some really good examples of financial services companies that actively recruited um, people from Japan, Europe, and India. Huh. And they benefited very successfully from doing that. We now have the opposite happening. Um, I've been contacted by a huge Indian company to be on their board because they want to expand their presence in the United States, and so they want to attract Americans. Unfortunately, it's a conflict of interest, so I can't, uh. I can't work work with them because that would have been phenomenal. But. You know, because they actually, um, a couple of my clients are a couple of their clients. Oh, okay. And I'm in a position where I can influence those vendor decisions. Right. I don't want to 
be put myself in a position where it may look like I'm trying to influence my client to have a vendor relationship that, you know, that's not up and up. So I have to unfortunately, you know, had to recruit, recuse myself from that. But I thought it was a really interesting tactic and very smart tactic Shoot, yeah. of theirs to recognize a couple of things. And they were very honest with me. One, we want to expand more into the United States and actually have a substance presence in the United States. And two, we recognize that for the customers that, that they serve, um, most of the financial decisions are made by the woman in the household. Mm-hmm. And they have a completely male board. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they went, this isn't serving us well. We need a different perspective um, that can help us look at this differently and potentially um, position ourselves and our products and services more effectively. Well, give them credit for having the insight at least to realize that they needed to reach out and find people who could were more relatable. Um, right to the types of things but, they wanted to do right and but this is exactly why we see so much of this in the media right now um, the media really in in the case of boards and board <laughs> diversity is being a lighter here from what I've been <laughs> able to see the boards are talking about it a lot more it's very real to these boards and one of the models they're looking at by the way are colleges and universities mm-hmm. um, there was a study done gosh, I think it was about 10 years ago, um, that showed that colleges and universities that had student numbers of their boards um, actually looking at all the economic factors, including student loyalty post-graduation, mm-hmm. were much more successful. I'll be darned. And I can tell, I was just, I was just one of two student reps on my college board. Um, and I can tell you, from personal experience, I get why that is. Mm. When the student body knows and can substantively see that their interests and their perspectives are represented on the board, mm-hmm. they have a much stronger sense of ownership of that organization. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And it makes me wonder why, since it's so sensible, um, why others don't copy it or do you think they're going to start to? I think we're starting actually to see more and more of that uh, as a result. Mm. Um, and I know one of the things you wanted to ask, ask me about was activism. Yes. Yep. So wanna... Yeah, and it, that's kind of a good lead-in because um, it is. <laughs> I, I can remember that um, place I used to work, we'd have, we'd have a group of, of Catholic nuns who owned shares in our in, in the company, and they were not worried too much about you know the financial performance of the company, but they were very interested in the company's stand and actions on different types of environmental and and social issues. So yeah, I like you say, I'm interested in your views about activist shareholders and if they can now or in the future become the the conscience of corporate America, or are they just distracting? 
I think um, a little there. I don't know if I go as far as the conscious, but I I think they're definitely not a distraction. Mm. They're very real. And this is a relationship that's been going on between investors and companies pretty much since the advent of the relationship. And one of the things that is important and I think very powerful and and why capitalism, I think, has such an emotional resonance mm-hmm. with people, I kind of um, boil it down to this. Every dollar we spend is a vote for the world we want. Huh. Not the one we have, not the one that we feel is inevitable, but the one that we really want. And that is why capitalism is so important. Every single person can decide how they want to invest their money. We can make a conscious decision. Do I want to support the corporate values that I believe that Walmart has, or do I want to support the corporate values I believe Target has, and I will, and I can make my spending decisions accordingly, right. or I can say I want to support the, the corporate values of Amazon, and I can spend my money accordingly. And in the 70s, we're really with what we in the industry like to call the democratization of Wall Street, mm-hmm. which is really when the investment laws were loosened so that now anybody could invest in the stock market. And now almost everyone is invested in the stock market. That's true. 401ks. Um, we've expanded that. And that's why we call it the democratization of the stock market. Because as shareholders, we can choose. I Do I want to invest my 401k, sticking with the same example, right. in Walmart, Target, Amazon, or a combination thereof? Or do I just really hate consumerism and <laughs> invest my money in something else, right. right? We literally get to take our money and vote for the world we want hmm. and the values um, and the products and the services that we really support and believe in. Um, we don't have to be passive members of this world. And it really is in the best interest of boards to really leverage that. And when we look at and this isn't a coincidence, by the way, that we had a huge democratization of the stock market, and 10 years later, we had this explosion of brand management and brand valuation, and companies like American Express and Coca-Cola's value went off the charts yep. because we suddenly put a monetary value to their brand. Right. These things, this is an evolution. These things are closely tied because we had people literally voting in, with their dollars mm-hmm. for the brands they supported and they believed in. Coca-Cola had to change their business model because shareholders were pissed off that they were investing in South Africa still during apartheid. Right. Um, so th- this is very real for people. They made a conscious decision, Coca-Cola, we don't like what you're doing, and this is a democracy, and we're capitalists. We vote with our dollars, mm-hmm. and often that is the loudest thing we have to say. I guess from that point of view, everyone 
is potentially an activist and can, as you say, so eloquently vote with vote with their money for the kind of a world you want. I think we really are activists is that not everybody's conscious of it. It's not always a conscious decision. Um, you know, but for a lot of us that, that we live and breathe. Yeah. And um, for us, it really is. And we do as much work as we do on things like governance and on brand mm-hmm. um, and on product alignment and tying um, individual or community values to products because we understand how powerful that relationship is. Yeah, the power of choice. Okay, mm-hmm. let's shift gears and another topic sure. under the governance um, umbrella is security and more specifically cyber security. Um, and regardless of what anybody does, what whatever we make or sell, whether it's computers and networks, and servers are going to be part of the landscape. And I guess the Sony hacking incident in late December was both costly and embarrassing, and it cost the chief executive her job. Will Agile help deliver more secure computer networks? Not inherently, but it will and can only if, there's an explicit focus to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the organizations that I've worked with, um, it's actually been very successful because what we do with Agile is we very we shorten what's called the learning loop. And the learning loop is build, test, evaluate. Mm-hmm. This is this is anything we do in science and innovation. It's all it's the same learning loop. We build the experiment, we test the experiment, we evaluate the results of the experiment, and we do it again. Mm -hmm. And what we do with Agile as far as security is that we keep that loop going. You'll see in more sophisticated Agile organizations that they'll have individual teams working on security as part of the overall product Mm -hmm. that they're delivering or, or uh, adding features to, but you also have a separate Agile team and all they work on are security issues mm. and in looking to see how they can tighten security in a cost-effective and meaningful way. We can have absolute security, but you'll never get to communicate with anybody because you can't send any emails and you can't receive any emails and, you know, you can't have a fax and you can't send texts and you can't, you know, you, Good point. that's absolute security. Yep. It's extremely expensive, but yeah. we don't want to go to the other extreme where you're completely open right? Um, because you're going to have nothing but problems. And so each organization needs to figure out what, where is their sweet spot. Mm-hmm between being accessible um, and having smart security. And agile teams focused on security have proven to be extremely successful because, again, that learning loop is usually days or weeks at most, two mm-hmm. weeks at most. Um, that, is, that is about as fast as it gets in this world. The other thing that agile organizations have proven to be very good at responding to our breaches. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Agile teams are standing 
teams. Mm -hmm. So they're always in existence. They're always working. Unlike traditional project teams, you have to stand up a team. Right, right. right. Um, What we do with an Agile team is we'll identify one or two, and we have them do what they call swarm. And it's where you just stop whatever you're doing before, and everybody only works on this one problem. Mm -hmm. And in the case of a couple of clients that I worked with on this, it's we had a security breach. You have a dead stop. These teams only focus on solving that security breach. So first really assessing what the hell just happened, how Mm. much is the damage, how do we stop it, and then how do we make sure it doesn't happen again. And what you find again is we talked earlier about the unfortunate, um, slow responses from Sony, um, Target, uh, I mean, the list is really long. I mean, some of them, it took them more than a year to respond mm-hmm. to when they identified the breach to when they actually did something about it. Um, the clients I've worked with, it's been, again, days and weeks. We responded within hours, mm-hmm. and we had it resolved um, within days or a couple of weeks. I think the longest was six weeks. And these aren't the kinds of problems that get better with age. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. no. Like uh, those vegetables you forgot about in the vegetable drawer in the oh, refrigerator. Yeah. yeah, it just gets a lot, a Boy. lot uglier. Yeah, for real. <laughs> so let's let's talk job evaluation. Um, okay. The board members do they get individual performance reviews, or does the board get a as a whole? Do they get a review? I guess what I'm getting to is. Um, how is there a way to hold those folks accountable? Um, the primary accountability comes from the stakeholders or the shareholders. Okay. Um, and it, who that is varies a little bit depending on the type of the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so privately held um, companies, it's really about the stakeholders. Are they getting the return on investment? So you think about VCs, you know, et cetera. Um, those boards often um, are evaluated, not always individually, though, and usually the cycle time is pretty long, um, five to ten years, mm-hmm. or ad hoc. So if there's been a couple of years of underperformance, um, the primary uh, equity holder usually venture capital firm, will initiate an analysis and an evaluation of the board. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, uh, especially if it's an investment that they're holding on to for right. a little while, um, they will have it on a five-year cycle. The problem with those um, kind of companies is they usually don't hold on to a company for five years. So, <laughs> so they say, we're going to we evaluate you at uh, due diligence, but we're not going to take a look at you again for five years, but we're going to sell you in three. Yeah. That, right? That's the so timing it, is way off. It usually doesn't happen. <laughs> Um, when we the companies that we most think of for corporate boards are Fortune 100s, right? Yeah, it's, when right. you ask a public about a corporate board, that's who pops into our head. All publicly traded companies have boards. Um, all corporations, regardless of how they're configured, have a board. And those boards are almost never 
evaluated. Mm. Um, as a board, performance as a whole, they're rarely evaluated. Um, individual performance is rare still. Um, the really the only way to provide feedback is for shareholders during the annual meetings to vote them in or vote them out. Right. Most shareholders in, in America, and this is really unfortunate, but most shareholders don't vote. That's true. They they ignore their proxy, or if they do vote, they vote the way the company recommends. Right. Or a lot of times, especially um, for employees of the company, they will sign over their proxy to their corporate uh, representative. Mm -hmm. Or if they have proxies from a 401k fund, they will sign over their proxy to the fund manager. Mm -hmm. um, some of the 401ks, and this is one of the things we really, reforms we probably should consider in this country, some of the 401ks, it's built into the terms and conditions that almost never anyone reads that <laughs> says you automatically, by saying you're a member of this 401k fund, um, you're signing your proxies over to the fund manager. Huh. And that's why if you've ever if you're sitting here listening to this and you're like, I don't remember seeing proxies from my 401k. That's why. That's that's uh, why. Yeah. Most of the employer-based 401k funds, you just by having membership in that fund have signed over your proxies, including your employer's 401k fund. Hmm. Well, that probably accounts for why so little gets changed and for why so uh, few... But just so you know, so we close this loop for a second, sure. most of those funds, you can um, contact the fund board or contact the fund manager and ask to be exempted from that. Yeah. Um, very rare instances um, can you not, and so you can request to vote on your own behalf. That's a, that's a good word, and for folks who want to become more active, um, a good solution. And until you just said that, I, I did not know that. Yep. So in the time we have, let's talk about directors behaving badly, and, <laughs> and specifically the case of the board of, of Wynn Resorts. Wynn Resorts, and um, if you've been in Las Vegas, um, Steve Wynn and his company are ubiquitous, but they also have a a very well documented record of poor performance when it comes to issues of pay and their latest public issue of trying to force the ex-wife of founder and CEO Steve Wynn off the board. Now, she's a co-founder and also listed as the third largest shareholder of the company and to force her out the board is moving to reduce their membership from eight seats to seven um, should shareholders ask or even demand that founders of what are essentially family enterprises be treated differently if for not the only reason of of situations like this um. I struggle with that because I've also seen 
founders of family-owned enterprises hanging on past their useful life. Yeah. And um, really doing um, some damage to the organization. And, you know, I uh, personally don't work that frequently with family-owned businesses, but I have a friend that does a lot of consulting with them, especially during the generational transition. And she has horror stories of the founder not letting go and letting the next generation take over. Right. and run the company, and how hard that can be. Now, this is a very different situation, right? Right. Um, we had a company that under its current CEO hasn't been performing well and actually hasn't been performing well for, what, about 10 years, right? right. That's right. It's been a while. Um, and the primary reason he still is the CEO, and a lot of people are immediately hearing that and going, how has he still got a job? Yeah. It's because he's the, the majority shareholder. Yep. And so he votes for himself and keeps himself employed. Um, and this is where people get very frustrated, um, people being shareholders, customers, stakeholders, um, you know, the government, you know, regulators, everybody gets frustrated because there is not the governance necessary and that we look for from a board in that position, in the circumstances, because they should be objective. Right. They should be able to be making rational decisions about what's best for the organization. And because their CEO is also on the board, so we have a problem right there. Mm-hmm. We don't have objectivity. We have a conflict of interest. Right. And the CEO is the, is the majority shareholder. Another conflict of interest. The board really is prevented from doing any real governance. And part of that is whenever we have really significant issues like this as board members, we have a fiduciary duty to treat the disease, not the symptom. Mm-hmm. And the fight that's going on right now is to remove the, the symptom, probably not the disease. Uh. And so we have the, again, um, probably has too many conflicts of interest going on, CEO, majority shareholder. Um, and I, I don't think he is the, the chief of the board, but um, he's on the board. Right, anyway. that's right. Yeah, he he, he's listed got, as the CEO, so yeah, I don't know if that yeah. means he's board chairman. I, I'm not, I don't remember, but... Um, and that happens a lot, by the way. Mm-hmm. You have the chairman of the board is also the CEO. Well, there's no opportunity for governance there at all. You literally have not only you know the fox watching the hen house. It, it never works. And mm-hmm. that's also been scientifically proven, by the way. Yeah. Um, companies that do that with any, um, for any length of time actually wind up underperforming. Mm. Not a surprise. Their competitors. Right. It, it isn't at all. Um, but what we have here is also Steve Wynn being uh, 
um, very outspoken in the media about his bitterness and resentment towards his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a, you know layers and layers of bad behavior in a board pretty much in the position to do very little to nothing to solve the real problem. Hmm. Well... Really acting poorly in this situation, unprofessionally, let's say that, unprofessionally in the situation, and acting in a way that really isn't against the best interest of wind resorts. Because what's in the best interest of wind resorts is to stop this craziness mm-hmm. and focus on the business of wind resorts and doing that really well and not interpersonal pettiness and conflict. Yeah. Um it does. Uh, it just sort of takes the whole family feud aspect of it to a to another level, and there's there's lots of money at stake, and not just shareholders, <laughs> but you know the people who work there are uh, impacted by uh, this kind of squabbling. Well, and so have their customers. So um, I know from personal experience, the quality has gone down. Significantly, because mm-hmm. no one, you know, people are paying attention to the wrong things. Yeah, and they're not building up the business; they're arguing with each other. Well, hopefully, uh, some of the board members of Wynn Resorts are listening and um, will <laughs> will heed your advice. And just like we do every week, Ren, um, we've we've learned a lot about. Uh, how boards should behave and how they can deliver value to not just shareholders but everybody else and how we as individuals can, as you said so well, vote with our money. Before we go, I want to tell listeners um, about a position paper that Wren has penned and uh, will be making available on her website, which is wrenmelberg.com. And... Um, all you got to do is go ask for it, and it will uh, be sent to you via email. And um, what about this paper, Ren? Is it uh, like the soup to nuts of, of Agile? Give us an idea of, of what you've written about. Well, not Agile. We really, on this first one, um, really wanted to focus in on um, introducing someone to the scaled Agile framework because mm-hmm. it is still fairly new. I mean, as a as a real substantive thing, mm-hmm. it's only about four years old. Okay, so it's still very new to a lot of people. So, um, what the goal was to provide a nice, very accessible um, overview of Safe um, and give someone a nice foundation for understanding Safe. Um, so they can can continue on their journey. Right. Yeah, and uh, uh, having read it myself, it's uh, it's very approachable. And um, if you are interested, re- request it by going to wrenmelberg.com. Similarly, if you want to be in touch with Ren directly, go to the website, which is wrenmelberg.com, and there's a contact button. You can also subscribe to the podcast and to her blog posts. And if you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud, once again, it's rinmelberg.com. And if you've got a question, send it to her that way also. And uh, I know that Rin is very prompt in getting back to folks 
-hmm. Please join us again next week for another edition of the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg.